Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in the Torah for 2021. And this week we find ourselves in portion Noach. Notice I pronounce it Noach, not Noah, because it ends in a ch sound. So um, as I was sitting at my desk this week trying to think, how do we approach this portion? Because there are so many what I call Torah dimensions to the first two portions of Genesis, Bereshit last week and Noah this week, where do you even begin? And, um, and I started thinking, you know, we live in basically a two-dimensional world. Of course, it's a three-dimensional world, but we experience, for most part, in two dimensions. When we give directions to someone, we tell them how far to go north or south. You turn right or do you turn left. We don't tell them how far up to go. And uh, so, though the world is three-dimensional, we experience it mostly in two. And even if you go up an elevator in a skyscraper, the moment you step off the elevator, you're back in a basically two-dimensional world. You go forward or backward or left or right. And even if you go up in an airplane, uh, once you're up in the air, you can slide sideways out of your seat, and then you can go forward or backwards. Um, But the Torah is not even just three-dimensional, it's multi-dimensional. It's an incredible piece of writing. And though we can start in the portion, just read the first verse, the next verse, the next, the next, and go through it in a linear fashion as the story unfolds, to truly experience the Torah, we have to experience it in a multi-dimensional way. You know, when... Um, Uh, The Torah tells us that when God spoke from the top of Mount Sinai, the people were terrified. They were undone. They begged Moses, Moses, you go talk to God. If we keep listening to what he says from the mountain, we're going to die. And tradition tells us that when they heard God speak, they heard him speak from above and from below, from in front and behind, from the right and the left and even from inside of them. His voice permeated all of reality, and the experience of this made them feel like they were coming undone, like they were just becoming disjointed molecules, and it terrified them. It was almost a a death experience. They completely lost their sense of I, and... um, They just couldn't handle it. But maybe this is why Moses could speak to God face to face. Because the Torah tells us he was the most humble of all men. His sense of I, of me, was very small. And so to be in God's presence, to hear his voice, to speak to him face to face, didn't terrify Moses as it did the others. Anyways, all of this to say that to truly engage the Torah, as I think God invites us and desires for us to, we're going to have a little bit of that experience that the Israelites had at Mount Sinai. We're going to experience God's voice coming from all directions and from within as well. And so if you've just been studying his word, just on the surface, just in a linear fashion, I challenge you to ask God to help you to experience it 
in its many facets. And if you have this mistaken notion, this egoistic notion that you can grasp the material, you can figure out the Bible, you're going to have to go back and start at the beginning. Because to really begin to, to, to experience the ocean of Torah, you have to realize we don't know anything. We don't know anything. And the entire purpose of studying the Torah and engaging the Torah is to know him better and to become more like him and simply to experience his presence, to hear his voice speak through the Torah. Now, there are rules for this, and we can't violate the rules, but we want to experience the Torah in the way God wants us to experience. So let me give you an example. As I was sitting at my desk this week, I started doodling, and I I put Noah here in the middle, and um, I started thinking about the many dimensions in which this Torah portion connects with so many parts of the scriptures in very uh, almost supernatural ways. And so I started doodling and, and numbering these, and I show seven here, but there are many, many more. And I call these, again, Torah dimensions, where you take something from the story of Noah, from this portion, Noah, and then you find a unique connection with some other part of the Bible, and then another connection with another part, and then connections between these parts. And you begin to realize the unity and the oneness of the scriptures. And it's, uh, it's swimming in the ocean of Torah, where you go forward and backwards, left and right, up and down. And uh, so let me give you some examples. Let's take number one. And this is one, <clears throat> excuse me, that I have uh, addressed several times in the past. So you may want to go back to past teachings where we've gone through the Torah cycle, especially through the Torah Project, which you'll find on our website, where I take more than a year to go through just the book of Genesis. And we spend several weeks going through uh, the Torah portion of Noah. But let's take, for example, the Ark. And what is the other structure we read about in this Torah portion? There are two man-made structures, the Ark and, of course, the Tower. The Tower of Babel. Let me change pins. The Tower. Now these aren't here by accident. God has these two man-made structures described here almost back to back because he wants us to compare them. Now here's what happens when we do this. When we look at two things that are connected and see their similarities and their differences, This is called a menorah pattern. A menorah pattern, there's a a technical term for this. It's a a chiasm or chiasm, where something at the beginning connects to something over at the end, and something near the beginning connects to something near the end. And you find things that are exact opposites of each other, but they also reflect one another. When you look in the mirror, what you see is an exact reflection of you. But everything's opposite. Left is right and right is left. So when we look at the ark and the tower, for example, we see that the ark 
Let's put the ark on one side and the tower on the other. We see that the ark is God's idea and the tower is man's idea. The ark is made out of something living. It's made out of wood, where the tower is made out of bricks, something that are dead. The ark was built by one man, but the tower and the city that goes with it was built by the entire population. The ark was movable. The tower was stationary. The ark was built in obedience, but the tower is built in disobedience because it was Nimrod's idea, it appears. And it says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter in the face of the Lord or in defiance of God. The ark looks to the future, but the tower seems to look to the past. We don't know for sure, but it's assumed that one of the reasons the tower is built was in case there's another flood, we can go up the tower and stay above uh, water level and survive. And so this was something that was done looking to the past. And uh, you can go on and on. Uh, you know, the, the ark succeeded. It ended in salvation, but the tower was an utter failure. Uh, the ark was built in faith. The tower is built in fear. And you can go on and see that when we compare the ark and the tower, it's almost as if we see God's way of salvation versus man's way of salvation. One is successful, but it makes no sense up front. Building this big ship, and what is rain? It had never rained on the earth until then. And we're, we're far away from any body of water, and you're taking 100 years to build this huge boat. Noah, you're insane. But it worked, because he built it in obedience to God's command. Whereas the tower seemed logical. But what a failure that was. So you get the idea. No, the, the menorah is God's motif for giving light. And everything in the scriptures that gives light to us gives it on the basis of the menorah pattern. For every truth you discover in the scriptures, there's going to be something that brings balance to that truth and gives you the whole picture. For example, when we talk about the ark, and then talk about the tower, we see a fuller picture that God is describing two ways of salvation. He's describing man's ways versus God's ways, obedience versus disobedience. So there are many, many things we can draw out of this. And again, I don't want to spend too much time on this one, but you can go back and you can review this from past teachings. But let's take a few more. How about this? At Babel, we see the people making bricks. Now, what is the other story in the Bible where we see people making bricks? Of course, it's in the book of Exodus, uh, where the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and Pharaoh is making them make bricks. So, we have the Babel bricks, and I'll just call these the Egypt bricks. So, here are two stories. I don't know of any other brick-making stories in the Bible, so let's take these two. And what you'll find is that in Babel, the people volunteered to make the bricks. They said, let us make a tower and make a name to ourselves and keep us together. And, and they all pitched in. They were doing it with vigor and with joy, apparently, but they were doing it with excitement. Uh, nobody had to be cracking the whip over them to make them make these bricks. But in Egypt, it's exactly the opposite. Now, in both stories, you find a tyrant. You find Nimrod in the one story and Pharaoh in the other. 
But there's an interesting transition we find here. You know, so many times when things start out with great unity and great excitement, after a while, they become something enslaving. And the leader who inspires at one point becomes a slave driver at another point. At the Nimrod becomes a Pharaoh. And as I was thinking about these two things, I was think, thinking about the poison and the falsehood of socialism that's sweeping the planet and even invading our own country. Some of our leaders are openly socialist. And yet socialism is just a fancy name for theft. Everything in socialism is based on theft. And if you look at the, the history of socialism, it always starts out with excitement and enthusiasm, as in Babel, making the bricks. Let's make a name for ourselves. And comrade, and we'll, it, the workers will join together to accomplish this great utopia on earth. But invariably, socialism always leads to tyranny, where now you've got a dictator who's cracking the whip and making you do something against your will. It is true that socialism does make people equal, but it makes them equally poor and miserable and enslaved. And there's very little freedom involved. And in socialism, you always find the people in control, the ones with the money, and the ones who are cracking the whips, the ones who are enjoying the good life while the vast pop, uh, bulk of the population is enslaved and have lost their freedoms. So this brings us to Nimrod. Nimrod was the first dictator in the world. Who is the last dictator this world will see? Well, of course, it's the Antichrist. And there are many comparisons between Nimrod and the Antichrist. So these are two connections. This is another Torah dimension where you take this near the beginning of Genesis and then this other individual there, the last book in Revelation, begin to compare them. Fortunately, their ends are much the same. They both fail. They're both destroyed. And what they tried to build becomes a pile of ruins. How about the confusion of Babel? God comes down and confuses the languages. <clears throat> and when you read in our Torah portion, it tells us about the sons of Shimham and Japheth and how they, um, they, their descendants formed 70 nations. If you count all the descendants of Shimham and Japheth and the people groups they became, you'll come up with a number of 70. And so you'll often hear in the scriptures and in Jewish writings references to the 70 nations, or the 70 languages. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, the confusion at Babel, where the languages are confused and people scattered. Where do we see the opposite of that happening? And of course, that would be at Mount Sinai. Because in Egypt, People from all the nations had become enslaved. It wasn't just Jewish slaves. There were slaves from all around the world, a great mixed multitude of slaves. And when they came out with Israelites there at Passover and they came to Mount Sinai, we are told that when 
God spoke from Mount Sinai. The Talmud teaches us that every man heard God speak in their own language. So the language that was confused at the Tower of Babel has been healed, at least momentarily, at Mount Sinai. And of course, the day that God spoke from Mount Sinai was Shavuot, Pentecost. And what happens later in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, at Shavuot? We have men from all the nations gathered in Jerusalem. They're at the temple. And when the apostles speak, every man heard them speak in his own language. So when man wanted to do things his own way, make a name for himself, God confused the languages and away they went. But when people come to God and come to his Torah, people who normally would have no business being with each other become one. They become brothers and sisters. And we as Gentiles from all languages and nations, we become grafted in and we become one family. So there's a great unity when we give our hearts to God and we choose with our own free wills to follow his word, to live life his way. And speaking of the 70 nations, these 70 nations are scattered. <clears throat> Can you think of another place where 70 entities were sent out? If you want to pause the teaching right now and think about it and see if you can come up with it, that would be fine, but I'm going to go ahead now and tell you. It's when Yeshua sent out 70, and I'm going to put apostles in parentheses. We know that there were seven, uh, I'm sorry, 12 official apostles. But when you read in Luke chapter 10, he sends out his 12 apostles, but then it says he sent out 70 others. And in Greek, to send out as apostello. It means to send out. So these are apostles, if not permanently, at least temporarily. And he sends out 70. Now think about this. At the Tower of Babel, the languages are confused and the people scattered all over the world. But now Yeshua sends out 70 apostles to take a message of unity to the world to say God's kingdom is coming. In fact, it's here. And what was scattered and broken is now to become one under the rulership of Messiah. That's something to look into. And I think you'd enjoy studying this more closely. When Noah and his family came out of the ark, it describes... Um, you could almost call it the recreation of the world. It wasn't really a, a recreation, but the restoration of the world. And you can compare this to the creation story back in Genesis chapter 1. You find many of the same terms used. Here are just a few examples. Uh, in Genesis 1, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, the Ruach of God. But in the destruction of the world and, and then the drying up of the waters, uh, it says God sent a ruach, a wind over the earth, and the water subsided. In Genesis 1, we see God separating the waters above from the waters below, and the, and the firmament appears. I'm mean, sorry, the dry land appears. But in the flood, we see the waters from above and the waters from below released and flooding the world. 
And uh, we see God commanding Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God gives the same commandment to Noah and his sons to be fruitful and to multiply. One of my favorite uh, Torah dimensions is to take the ark and compare it to the tabernacle. How many sections did the ark have? It had three, three areas. First deck, second deck, third deck. How many areas did the tabernacle have? Three. Outer court, holy place, holy of holies. The the scriptures describe one window in the ark, at least the way the wording is. It had one window, which is one cubit by one cubit. And right in the middle of the tabernacle, we find an altar of incense that is one cubit by one cubit. The only items in the Bible that are described as being one cubit square. And the altar of incense allowed a person, allowed the priest to burn incense and would go up over the curtain and on into the Holy of Holies. And the incense is a picture of our prayers. And what did Noah do with the one cubit by one cubit window in the ark? He released a bird from it. It was the place where he could allow things to ascend from the ark. But the big difference between the ark and the tabernacle, I mean, both of them moved. One moved with the waters and the other moved through the wilderness. Uh, One big difference is this. Noah and his family lived in the ark. They indwelt the ark. But with the tabernacle, God indwells the tabernacle. The ark was a vessel of salvation for mankind. But the tabernacle is God's way of living with a saved, redeemed mankind. The the ark took Noah and his family into a place where they could once again commune with God. But the tabernacle was a way where God could come and commune with man. Beautiful pictures, and we should uh, take some time to compare them. Another Torah dimension. And of course, there are, are, are plenty, there's plenty of room for others. You know, um, as I was sitting at my desk, I think it was just yesterday, I started thinking about the rainbow. And I'll call this the Genesis rainbow on this side. And God placed his keshet, his bow, in, this, in the cloud as a sign of his covenant that we would never destroy the world again by a flood of water. Where's the other place in the Bible we see a rainbow mentioned? Of course, that's in the book of Revelation. There's a Revelation rainbow, and the two rainbows are connected. You can read about the Revelation rainbow in in Revelation chapter 10, I believe it is. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 9, Revelation chapter 9. Here's something else that occurred to me that is important for us to differentiate between. In fact, I, I caught myself a moment ago, I, I spoke of how God destroyed the world with a flood. Actually, he did not destroy the world with a flood. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say he destroyed the world with a flood. Though we always tend to say that. Um, uh, because after all, I look out here and the world's still here. So it wasn't destroyed by the flood. It was washed clean by the flood. 
mankind was destroyed and every animal that had the breath of life in it was destroyed, but the planet wasn't, the earth wasn't. So we see the flood of Genesis, but we see a great destruction prophesied in 2 Peter that is future. And how is that destruction brought about? And of course, that destruction will be brought about by fire. Now, here's what's interesting. We see two destructions. But in the first destruction with the flood, it was uh, the living things, the animals and mankind that was destroyed, but the planet was just cleansed, just like God washed the chalkboard. He says, I'm going to draw something different up here now. But in the future, the people are saved, but the planet is destroyed by fire. The world is destroyed by fire, but the people are spared. And in this destruction, God makes a new planet. So at the flood, he started with a new group of people. But in the future of the fire, he makes a new heavens and a new earth. So here are eight. I bet there are 80 more. And you get an idea of how, as you study the Torah, your knowledge and your awareness of the other parts of the words uh, the word of God comes into play and you need to begin to look for the connections. Because when God had the words of Genesis written down in history, he had all the words of Revelation already in his mind, ready to write down in the future. It's one author. It's one book. Though there were many hands who held the pen that wrote the book. And so that author, God, knew the end from the beginning. And it's almost as if the word of God is one united thing, but he's taken it and broken it apart. And he has unraveled it so that we can go through it in a linear fashion. But we must never lose sight of the fact that the word of God is echad. It's one. It's united. And everything in the word speaks to everything else in the word. And this is part of the joy that comes from delving into the ocean of Torah and and just uh, uh, reveling in the amazing word of God. And you lose yourself in this. And you come away often thinking, how do I apply this in my life? But even if you can't think of a practical way of applying it, somehow your life has been changed because you've been in God's presence. You have somehow been in the Holy of Holies and you've been in intimate conversation with him. And I want every one of you to experience this over and over in your life. So, parents, teachers... Bore your kids and your students with other things, but never bore them with the Bible. The Bible is living, and it's uh, multifaceted. It's the most amazing thing in this world. So don't let all the pages and all the words scare you away and um, discourage you. Just dive in. The ocean is huge. But that shouldn't stop you from diving in and enjoying it and exploring as much as you can and as deep as you can. I always like bringing out some kind of Hebrew insights uh, 
as we go through a portion. And uh, one of the things that uh, jumped out at me, and I hope you enjoy this as well, is there are some deep insights in this that are found only in the Hebrew. Uh, this first word we see at the top in red is the word lavav. It can be pronounced labub, and it means heart. And you've probably heard me mention before that um, Hebrew uses a lot of onomatopoeia, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, where the word, the pronunciation of the word, sounds like the thing it describes. And what sounds your heart make? Labub, labub. And this first letter here on the right, the lamad, is always an L sound. And these two letters are the same, and they're the ones who give us our B sounds. They can also be pronounced as a V, lavav. But uh, labub or lavav, okay? So lavav means heart. Now, here I have the word spelled backwards. So, Taking what you know about the pronunciation of the words, how would you pronounce this? And if you say Babel, you're exactly right. Babel. So what's the lesson here? Babel means confusion. Babel was the source and place of confusion. But what causes confusion in your life and in mine? A backwards heart. A heart that instead of being turned towards God and his ways, we turn it away and we follow our own ways. That is always confusion and misery and failure. Even though there's a way that seems right to the man, the ends thereof are the ways of death. So um, you're wise if you make your heart forward and point it towards God. Most of you know, and when we had the Torah scroll rolled out in here um, a little over a week ago at, um, at our Sheminiat Zeret meeting, we rolled it out and we were explaining that the first letter of the Torah, which is a letter bait, and the last letter of the Torah, which is letter Lamed, these spell the word Lev, heart, because the Torah is God's heart. And I must mention here that sometimes, many times in Scripture, we see the word heart spelled just with one bait, this lamed bait, lev. So sometimes with one, sometimes with two, but it still means heart. Now, this letter here by itself is a letter ayin. And as you know, every Hebrew letter is also a word, and the word ayin, the name of this letter, means I. Not I as in me, but I as in what I see with. I. And when we take the word levav, heart, and spell it backwards, it becomes babel. But what happens when we take just lamad bet, lev, which means heart, and spell it backwards? We get the word ball, not babble, but just ball. And ball, I'll write it over here, bait lamed equals the word not. Not. And of course, what was the backwards love, the backwards heart always say to God? Not going to do that. 
God says, forgive. Mm, not going to do that. It says, keep the Sabbath. Mm, not going to do that. A backwards heart always says, not. Not going to do it. But a forward heart, a love, is something that is yielded to God. Now, in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 15, this is part of our, our daily prayers. It's, it talks about the zitzit. And it says, and the zitzit shall be for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Adonai so as to do them. Now get this. And not follow after your love, your heart, and your own eyes, after which you play the harlot. Some more polite translations say, so you don't go astray. But the word there is zonah, not to play the harlot, the prostitute. We're not to explore after our heart. That's internal. You know, and there are some people, whenever they encounter a situation, they have to stop and think, oh, let me consult my heart and see how I feel about that. And they look into their hearts and say, oh, I don't like that. I'm not going to do that. God says, don't explore after your heart. Okay, so maybe I should explore after something external. I'll use my eyes to do that. So when they encounter a situation and think, well, let me think about that. Let me look around. Let me see what other people are doing. God says, don't explore after your eyes either. Because if you follow after your heart, you go into confusion, and you're always going to rebel against me. And if you follow after your eyes, you're also going to get confused. You're going to go the wrong way. So if I can't look inwardly, and if I can't look outwardly, where do I look? I look to him. I look to him. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. So, we remember to keep the commandments. That's what the zitzit are for. We look at them and remember the commandments. And so we won't explore after our hearts and after our eyes, after which we play the harlot. Instead, we look to him, and he will direct our paths. So what happens if we take the word for love and spell it backwards, and then we stick the letter ion right in the middle of it. This gives us the word Baal. If you want to understand what Baal worship is, it's a heart that's turned away from God. It's a heart that is confused and backwards. And it's a heart that explores after itself and after its eyes but it does not acknowledge God and his commandments. Isn't that fascinating? I hope you're saying yes right now. But though we could go further with it, let's continue on. Okay, let's actually get to the Torah portion. In the last verse of Bereshit and the first verse of Noah, this is what we read, Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9. But Noah found grace in the eyes of Adonai. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He was not the most righteous man in the scriptures, but compared to the rest of his generation, he was tops. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now what's kind of interesting is that this word grace, this is how it's spelled here, is the word chen. So chen equals grace. 
What's really interesting, though, if we spell the word backward, instead of chet nun, we spell it nun chet. It is the name Noach. Chin becomes Noach. Now, don't let these two letters confuse you. This letter and this letter are the same letter. It's just that when it occurs at the end of a word, it straightens out, stands up, and changes shape. But when it's found at the beginning or in a word, in the middle of a word somewhere, it's shaped bent like this. But it's the same letter, letter nun. So, chet nun is grace. Nun chet spells noach. And what I really find fascinating is the word noach, the name noach, means rest. That's where we get the word Nahum from the word Noah with an M on the end. And um, so Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And when you find God's grace, you find real rest unto your souls, don't you? So here we see the Hebrew word for grace, which is chin. And here's the Greek word for grace, which is charis. Charis, that's where we get the word charismatic or charisma. They mean the same thing, but the question is, what do they mean? And I asked you in the Thursday update uh, to rethink what we've been taught about grace. What does grace mean? How do you define it? And of course, you were raised in the evangelical world as I was. We were taught that grace means unmerited favor, unmerited favor. And that theology and that definition has destroyed the lives of many people. Here's what the word chen and charis means. It simply means favor. Whether it's merited favor or unmerited favor, it just means favor. And again, God does give unmerited favor but he gives more favor to those who merit it. Let me explain. Let's just look at some passages. Proverbs 12.2 A good man will obtain favor, that's chen, grace, from Adonai, but he, Adonai, will condemn a man who devises evil. So a good man obtains grace. Well, wait a minute. If grace is unmerited, then the wicked person who devises evil should, should merit that unmerited grace just as much. But that's not the case. Luke one thirty, the angel said to her, to Mary, uh, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace with God, favor. This is charis here, and kin in the Hebrew. Acts 7.46, and referring to David, David found favor in God's sight, and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. First uh, Peter 2, 19 and 20. For this finds grace. This is something that brings more of God's grace in your life. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In other words, if you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly, God gives you more favor gives you more grace. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this finds grace in the sight of God. Grace in the sight of God. You know, in the, uh, in the, um, the, the priestly blessing that we do each week on Shabbat, the middle line is, and may God make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Why do we pray that blessing if grace is unmerited and just given to everybody the same? It's because when God raises his face upon us and makes his face shine upon us, something emanates from him and it's his favor because when God makes his face shine on us, it's shining on us with favor and we want him to do that. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua talks about the person who has an evil eye. And the evil eye, he talks about what darkness there is, if the eye is dark. And that is a, a, an idiom, the evil eye, for greedy. In other words, instead of light coming from your face, you're trying to take everything in. You want to take everything in and make it your own. You covet what is out there, want it for yourself. And he says, if your eye is dark, oh, how deep is that darkness inside? But God, on the other hand, makes his face shine and gives grace. And we want that grace. But that kind of merited favor comes through obedience. It comes from doing God's will. One of the things I find interesting in our translations is whenever grace is being referred to in its unmerited state. The word grace is used. But whenever it's talking about grace that is merited, they change it to favor, though it's the same word in the original. So you need to be aware of that, because even our translators have this idea of unmerited favor. And so when they see grace, it's given in an unmerited way, they'll use the word grace. But when God is giving grace because someone has been righteous, because he wants to give them more grace, then they change it over to favor. Now, if you're still wrestling with this, let me, um, let me put it this way. Here's an example. Let's say as a father, you have two sons, one righteous, one wicked. And some people have a righteous son, a righteous child, and an unrighteous, wicked child. So when that wicked child comes and says, Dad, I need such and such. Would you please give me such and such? More times than not, you're going to say no because what this wicked child is asking for is something that's going to be used in a wicked way or promote wickedness. It's something he's asking for selfishly. It's an unrighteous request. And so he hears a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of no in his life. But when the righteous, godly child comes, more often than not, his request is going to be a righteous request. It's going to be for something good, something that's beneficial not only to himself but to others. And so he's going to hear a lot of yes in his life. And what is really interesting is that the word chen, which means grace, also 
is the Hebrew word for yes. If you start learning modern Hebrew, two of the words you'll learn right up front is chin and lo, yes and no. And uh, grace means yes. And when a person is righteous, a righteous man's prayers, I mean, they're effective. When a righteous man goes before the Lord, he's asking for righteous things, things that Yeshua would ask for. And God says, yes, yes, yes. Chin. He's giving him more favor, more yeses, more grace. But the person who's asking God for things and not getting them, we're told that that happens because he's asking to consume them on his own lust for his own fleshly desires. And God says, no, no, no. Now we've talked about this before, but this is the perfect time to review again God's two kinds of love, his two loves. And this is probably one of the most important things I can impart to you today. And you must grasp hold of this. There are two kinds of love God has for people. The first kind of love is the love of a father for his children. This is unmerited favor. In other words, any of you who have children, even though your children are all different, they have different talents, different abilities, some may be better looking than others, some may be kinder than others, you lay down your life for any of them in a heartbeat. You love them all. Your heart goes out to them all because they're your kids. And even before they've done anything good or bad to deserve your favor, you would lay down your life for them. You do anything for them. You, and you have done everything for them. This is the kind of love that God has for the entire world. He does have this love for the entire world. And through his unmerited favor, he sent us Yeshua to bring salvation to the entire world. Unmerited favor. But there's a second kind of love. The second kind of love that's enjoyed not by the majority, but by the few. And this is the love of a husband for his bride. This is a merited favor. Because though I may have a bunch of children, and though God may love the entire world, and though I have three children... I have one wife, and I didn't choose my kids, but I chose her. Now, why was it I chose Robin out of all the other girls I knew? And many of them were very godly young women, and I'm sure they're all married, have wonderful marriages today. But why did I choose her? Because there was something about her that elicited a special love in my heart, and a, a respect, and a joy, and a, a, a smittenness, if there's such a word, that none of the others did. And uh, I chose her, just her. I chose that one. And um, that was a merited favor. There was something about the way she looked at me. There was something about 
uh, the things she enjoyed and uh, something about um, what she liked to talk about and liked to do and the way she thought. And, and um, of course, she's, I always thought she's the most beautiful woman in the world. And uh, I'm going to hear about that later. But uh, there is something about her was unique, and that's the one I wanted. And I feel about her the way I feel about no other woman in the world. Just the way it is. God also wants a bride. And not everyone gets to be part of that bride. Though he saved the whole world, he's marrying a bride and he's building that bride out of people who are wise and not foolish. Out of people who are preparing and who are faithful, who are obedient to his word. People who love him back the way he loves them. He's looking for people who would lay down their lives for him as he laid down his life for us. Those are the people he is fashioning and forming into a bride for himself. That is merited favor. As I was thinking about this this week, I started thinking about cheap grace. Cheap grace. In fact, I think I put it down here. Cheap grace. Cheap grace is a term coined by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who did die as a martyr. He died in Germany at the hand of the Nazis. Listen to what he writes about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, that's dying to self. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace is so prevalent in the world. So prevalent in the world. So prevalent in the redeemed community. I'm going to go back up here. And I want us to read a passage that's very sobering. And in light of what we've just been talking about, grace, how Noah, who is righteous in his generations, he is the one who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Not everyone else. He merited a favor that no one else did. And that favor overflowed into his sons. Anyways, Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31. Let's read this and pay close attention to what it says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, let that sink in. And I know we've all done this. We figure it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to practice obedience. And we've been so taught about God's unmerited favor, his grace, 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 grace. All of a sudden, sin doesn't look like that big of a deal. And this is what has been so destructive in the lives of so many people call themselves believers, call themselves Christians, but they're not. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins 
but a fearful expectation of judgment. You know, there are some circles in the redeemed community that say that we as believers won't even be judged. What? Where do they get that? Judgment begins in the house of God. We're the first ones in line to get judged. Anyways, and a fury of fire that will consume the adver- adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the Torah of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? I want to pause there for a second. When Yeshua was on the cross, he did not say, Father, forgive them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But what happens when you trample him under your feet? When you sin deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth? That's quite different. We know that Yeshua washes the feet of his disciples. But we have taken the wrong-headed teaching of unmerited favor, unmerited grace to such an extent that we wipe our feet on Yeshua. We go out and we sin, we wipe our feet off uh, uh, on him and go on laughing Thanking God, oh, thank you for your grace. And we don't give a second thought to how wicked we are. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to drive home to us. How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of what? Of grace outraged the spirit of grace. God, who is so gracious and does pour out unmerited favor on the world, when it comes to those of us who know the truth and what his salvation cost him, and we continue to sin deliberately and wipe our feet on Messiah to trample his blood underfoot, We are outraging the spirit of grace. And then the passage continues. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge whose people? His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, in my many years as a believer and the last 25 years of pastoring the congregation, I've come to see that there are two kinds of believers, or at least two kinds of people engaged in the religious activities of a redeemed community. There are those who work on their souls, who conscientiously draw close to God, who invest time and energy and material goods 
to get closer to him, to know him better, and to change more into his likeness, to change themselves, to improve themselves, and to grow spiritually. And then there's another kind of person in the community who increases their knowledge. They gather information, but they don't work on their souls. I'm not sure they even think that getting closer to God is even a thing. And I think when they hear other people talk about drawing closer to God, hearing God's voice, they look at him like they're some kind of a religious nut. And when I look closer at these two different kinds of people, I see one group that's very conscientious that they do nothing to offend God. They're going to be so careful not to break his, his loving heart. And the others who just want to go on doing things their own way because that's what they've done, it's what they enjoy, and that's how they're going to do things, and they're saved by God's grace. And, and so they're secure in their salvation, and they don't realize that they've outraged the very spirit of grace, that God's judgment will come in their lives and is coming in their lives, and they're wondering why they're so miserable. They wonder why they're so frustrated. They wonder why the works of their hands aren't blessed. And every time they take a couple steps forward, they take another step back. They wonder why everything is such an effort. Because they're not part of the bride. They don't love God the way he loves them. And they're not willing to lay down their lives for him the way he laid down his life for us. They're putting their faith in cheap grace instead of taking up their own cross, denying themselves and following hard after Yeshua. So I hope you'll take this lesson to heart. And I know I'm convicted as I share these things. Because so many times it's just easier to ask for forgiveness. But God's going to hold us accountable for that. And we are going to be judged. And God is going to bring correction. But I want to be one of the wise virgins, not one of the foolish. I want to be prepared for when he comes. And so I'm going to invest now have oil in my lamp. That's what I want to do. I want my life to count. So if you've been one who has been taken in by the, the sales pitch of false grace, I hope you'll make the correction and repent of that and begin to follow God as a real disciple of Messiah. Now, we all know the last chapter of Proverbs, the, the chapter about the Ishet Chayel, the woman of valor. And the next to the last verse of that passage says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Adonai is to be praised. It puzzled me for a long time why the word for charm is our familiar word for 
grace. Now, we know what the passage is saying, that a person who's charming, you know, this ha-ha-ha-ha, they just kind of win you over. That can be very deceitful. And people, believers who should know better, I see constantly deceived by people who are charming. Don't be. The Satan himself is a charmer. But uh, charm is deceitful. So we understand what the verse is saying. But why did they use this verse? Why did Solomon use the, ver- the word chen for charm here? I think the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to use a word to teach us that even we can be charmed by this, this false theology of cheap grace. And we're deceived by it. And we think we're living a beautiful life because we're doing the things we want to do. We're following our own hearts and our own eyes. But the truth of the matter is, it is still deceitful and vain. But a woman who fears Adonai, and this theme of fear of God is something that It's always resonating in my mind more and more in these days. The woman who fears God, the man who fears God, that's the person to be praised. Quit praising the charming people. Praise the godly people who have a healthy fear of him, who are doing the work in their souls, who are becoming the people he wants them to be. Don't be deceived by the false notion of cheap grace. Grace isn't anything but cheap. So, with that, some discussion questions. Which one of the Torah dimensions, and I had seven printed there and I added a couple more, which of the Torah dimensions did you find most interesting? Share additional insights, because hopefully your wheels were turning while we talked about those. And uh, so you might want to share with the group which one of those is you find most fascinating and why. What other Torah dimensions? I shared some, but there are plenty more. What other Torah dimensions do you see in this Parsha? Parsha Noach. And there's so much here. We only read a couple verses, um, but there's so much here. Uh, what other things do you see? Connections from something that's Torah Parsha connects to something else in the Word. And you build your menorah, you put them together, and then what is the third thing you see emerging from them? What are the dangers of cheap grace? Talk about this. And if there's one important question for your group to discuss today, I think this is the one. Describe in detail God's two kinds of love. Make sure you understand those fully and completely and share that with other people. Take time for silent, reflective prayer. Are you guilty of outraging the spirit of grace? If so, you have some business to do with God. So do that today. So let's close in prayer. Our Father and our King, I thank you so much for the light of your Torah. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So Father, I pray that light would illumine for us things in our lives that we may not want to look at. And Lord, if we have been people who've been so complacent and flip about your grace, forgive us, Father. Grant us repentance. For even though we may have known we were sinning, we did not know how we were 
outraging the spirit of grace itself. We were in the dark. We were ignorant of that. So, Lord, I pray now we would no longer commit that error. Grant us repentance. Make us the people you want us to be. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for it when we sit down to the, the wedding feast and a day soon to come. Thank you, Father. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.